Uh, I'm going to start out by reading one verse or two verses in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, it says in verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery that we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. The point of the rapture is that it was a mystery. The idea that there was going to come a time when people would enter into eternity without going through death was a mystery as far as a segment of the population or a, a, a generation of believers. Now, we had the examples in the Old Testament of Enoch and Elijah that did not die. They went <clears throat> straight up to heaven, and the indication is that they were translated as they went up. They were translated into a glorified state because they couldn't go up to heaven without that. So, but there was nothing, <clears throat> nothing recorded in the Old Testament about a generation of Jewish believers or a generation of uh, new believers that would be translated. It was a mystery. It just wasn't, it wasn't expressed in revelationary form. Now, there was an indication, and there is an indication, that at the end of the Messianic age, which the Old Testament didn't talk about the end of the Messianic age. In fact, in the Old Testament, the Messianic, Messianic age had no time frame. It wasn't until Revelation 20 that it was listed as a thousand years. So in the Old Testament, they were just looking for an everlasting kingdom. And from their perspective, it would last forever. And they didn't realize it would last a thousand years on this earth and then be transferred to the new earth and last forever on the new earth. So they had no concept. But we know now that at the end of the millennial kingdom, when the, the thousand years is, is finished, all those believers that have lived throughout the kingdom age will be translated also because there is no more there's no more resurrection of the righteous after the resurrection of the tribulation saints and the old testament saints at the beginning of the millennial kingdom or at the end of the tribulation that will be the end of the resurrection of the righteous because it seems that no righteous will die during the kingdom age and they will all be translated at the end. So the, the rapture is what we're going to be talking about this morning is <clears throat> was a mystery. It talks about it being a mystery and it was something that was not understood or, or recorded prior to this time about a generation of believers that would be changed without going through death. Okay, just a quick review. Now we talked about in John chapter 14 when Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he talks to them about the fact that he's going to ascend to his father's house. And he's going away to prepare a place for them. And then the promise is that if he goes away and prepares a place for them, he's coming again so that he can receive them into himself so that they will be where he is. And the, the, the concept or the context is that he will be at his father's house. He's going to come to get, to get us, going to meet us in the air, and he's going to take us back to his father's house. So that's the, the promise of the coming of the Lord for his bride, his church. And then in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 17, we talked about the event itself. And Paul talks about that, that event in, in the terms of, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, that the question arises: if you die before the rapture, will you miss out? And so Paul begins to give clarification and understanding that all believers from Pentecost on, all those who are, who have, who are in Christ, who are received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, <coughs> baptized into his body or baptized into his church, they will all be caught up together. Whether they have died, they will be resurrected. If they are living, they will be translated. So that is the event that he talks about. Now, on your chart, 
If you'll notice, uh, one of the things that is apparent is that God's program is distinct and different for the church than it is for Israel. And there's also a distinct program for the Gentile kingdoms. Now, the Gentile kingdoms flow out of the Gentile nations that began after the Tower of Babel. But the, ten, the, the, the Gentile kingdoms he's talking about are those four Gentile kingdoms that was given to us in Daniel by Nebuchadnezzar's dream and then by uh, Daniel's vision. <clears throat> and they represent four Gentile kingdoms primarily that will dominate and override Israel. So the relationship with the four Gentile kingdoms is mostly tied to their interaction and their domination of the nation of Israel and of Jerusalem. Okay, That's their main thrust in the biblical accounting and the biblical reason that God has raised them up is to bring judgment upon Israel. That's why they're there. Now we know that after Israel was destroyed by the fourth kingdom, Rome, and was dispersed, there was interaction between the Romans and the Christians, but that wasn't the primary reason for the Romans to have domination. It was over Israel. And so as Israel was scattered and dispersed, and there was no nation of Israel between 70 AD and 1948, there also was a waning of the demonstrative aspect of the Gentile kingdom of Rome. It got dispersed, and it didn't have the power, and it was spread from east to west. It had the, the, the eastern block of dictatorial communistic nations and the western block of democracies, which are going to be present. But now that you see that Israel has become a nation again, you're going to see the rise of this Roman, this Gentile kingdom again, because it's there to dominate Israel. And so that's what's going to happen. And that's what you're seeing in the world right now, is this, this hatred of the ethnic people of Israel. And it's not hatred because the Jews are believing in God. It's not, it's not, the hatred is not there just because they are in Israel. It's hatred because they're God's ethnic people chosen people and the rest of the world is going to hate them so so on, on your time chart here one th one thing that we need to understand about the relationship between the church and the time frame for the relationship with the uh, tribulation and with the jewish people involved in that and one of the the problems we have as we look at the timing of the rapture which is what we're going to be looking at this morning is the, the misunderstanding or the, the, the degree of differing opinions or interpretations about the role of the church and the role of, of Israel and the role of the Gentile kingdoms. And that's one of the problems. And so just like this morning when, when this week we're focused on the Reformation and we're focusing on um, the Reformers. The Reformers are the, really most of us flow out of a reform background. So all, most of your Protestant churches came out of the Reformation, right? But there were other peoples that were church people that weren't part of the Roman Catholic Church. So Roman Catholic Church wasn't the entirety of the Christian tradition and Christian history. The Reformation came out of the Roman Catholic Church. So all of the ones that came out of the, the all of the ones that were involved in the Reformation came from the Catholic Church and that background. But there were other Christians, and that's the only thing that, that I kind of worry about, is that we lose the aspect that the church had a history that wasn't just Reformation. 
The Reformation is not the only history of the church. The Baptists did not really come from the Reformation. The Baptists came from other denominations, other peoples that had maintained a church apart from the Roman Catholic Church. The way I've heard it explained is there's the Magisterial Reformation and the Radical Reformation. And the Baptists and all the other denominations came out of the uh, Radical Reformation, which they continued the Reformation much further. But what I'm saying is, there were true churches and true believers that never did need a reformation from a bad theology. They were continuing all the way from the time of the apostles all the way till now, doing, demonstrating themselves in different denominations, different segments or whatever, but not every part of church history is reformation. And we get that, that kind of flow that when we study church history, it's all about the reformation. It's all about the ones that came out of the Catholic church. And a majority did. And most of our history, most of our ancestors were part of the Reformation because we came out of churches of, out of Europe. So was Peter, when he says, you know, they always follow the line of Peter because he has the, uh, so was he part of the Catholic? No. Peter was given the keys to the kingdom, which means he was the one given the responsibility to start the church to the various segments. And so he started it with the Jews, and then he went to the Samaritans, who were half Jews, half Gentiles, and then he went to Cornelius' house, and he brought it to the Gentiles. And so the church was given, or the kingdom of heaven at that time, which is the church in this age, was opened up to all of the different peoples of the world through Peter. But Peter had nothing to do with the Roman Catholic Church. Okay, so that's that's a fallacy. Because it says in Matthew 16 that Jesus said, upon you, upon this rock, I will build my church. And so if you, if you take that, that rock, that, that Petra is to represent Peter, then they say, well, he's the foundation of the church. And so the church is built on Peter. But that's not true. Yeah, for some reason, the Catholics will say that he, they follow it back and say... I, I, exactly. So, but that's, no, no, no. That has nothing to do with, Peter did not start the Catholic Church. Okay. Okay. But out of that, and as we look at this, this time frame for the rapture, out of that comes the understanding of this term we call the second advent. Now, the first advent, when we look at the first advent on your chart, it began with the birth of Christ. He was born. He, it was the Word who became flesh. He was born of Mary. And then he lived a life and then when he was at the age of around 30 or so, he was baptized and declared to be the Son of God. And then he began an earthly ministry. And for three years, he ministered on earth and proclaimed the truths of God and called out his disciples that were going to be the apostles of the church. And then he died on the cross. And then he was resurrected. All that's part of the first advent. So it's not just one moment in time. It is a span of 33 years that covered the first advent of Christ. But because of the theology of the Catholic Church, the second advent is looked upon as one event. When Christ comes back down to earth and, and either destroys the people that are... A lot of the Roman Catholic Church believe that the, the judgment of the sheep and the goats is when Christ comes back to the earth and separates the good from the bad, and the good go to heaven and the bad go to hell, and that's it. We won't go there. That's a whole different theology. <laughs> but that's what, that was what they believed the second advent is. And so because of that, and because of the amillennial view that there is no literal kingdom coming for Israel, whether it's 
the belief of the Catholic Church that were post-millennial, believing that they were going to build a Christian kingdom on earth. And when they got the kingdom completely built and the whole earth became Christian, then Christ was going to come back and receive his kingdom. Or the amillennial view, which means that, no, the church has become spiritual Israel, and there is no literal kingdom. It's just a spiritual kingdom, and Christ is going to come back, and then the kingdom will end, and that will be eternity, heaven and hell. So that's the kind of views. So based on the tradition of those views, there is differing interpretations of the rapture of the church. The post-trib belief that the church will be raptured up at the same time as Christ comes down to set up his kingdom, they'll go up and they'll come right back down with him to set up the kingdom. That flows out of most people that are reformed in the amillennial camp. If there is no spiritual kingdom, then there is no there's no special time for the church to be um, different from Israel. And therefore, when Christ comes back, he receives the, the believers up and then they come back down and, and then you go to heaven or hell because they don't believe in a kingdom on earth. So I think the, the, one of the problems is if you look on your chart, the second advent on the top of your chart there at the beginning of the day of the Lord in, in, includes... The rapture of the church, if there's a gap of time between the rapture of the church and the signing of the covenant with the Antichrist, it would include that, and it would include the entire seven years of the tribulation. And on the last day of the tribulation, Christ will come back and destroy the Antichrist, and he will set up his kingdom as the glorified King of kings, Lord of lords, in all of his glory. So the second advent would include the entirety of the second coming of Christ. He's coming for his bride, he's coming to judge the nations, and he's coming to set up the kingdom. Any questions about that? Okay. <clears throat> so just as you, as you look at that, uh, that explanation on your chart, you see that there's a program for the church, there's a program for Israel, and there's a program for the Gentile nations. The Gentile nations and Israel are connected. They're linked because the Gentile nations or the Gentile kingdoms are there to judge Israel. And when Israel becomes a nation again, now the, the Gentile kingdom, the last Gentile kingdom is going to rise up again and eventually become the Antichrist. And then that kingdom will uh, initiate the, the time for Israel to be having temple worship first and then a time for the Antichrist to come in and, and do the abomination desolation at the midpoint. And the program is to, to annihilate Israel. The church is not part of that program. So when you look at the program for Israel, it goes the 70 weeks of Daniel are there. The 490 years that were prophesied by Daniel were for the nation of Israel, for God to fulfill all his promises and his, his purposes for Israel until the, until the Messiah would come. So it would complete all the prophecy that led up to the, the Messianic age. So we know that there were 483 years from 445 B.C. until Christ the Messiah came on Palm Sunday and declared himself and, and the people acknowledged that he was the Messiah. But then he was cut off. And so the last seven years of the 490 years has been put on hold. And we know that when the Antichrist signs a covenant with Israel, which begins the tribulation time, that is seven years in length. That's the final seven years of God's promise to Israel. The church is not included in that, so there's no reason for the church to be involved in that. There's no reason for the church to be here during that time. Likewise, the program of the Gentile kingdoms, 
God is storing up his wrath <clears throat> to judge those nations that are opposing Israel and trotting down Jerusalem. And God is going to pour out his wrath during that seven years when they are continuing their condemnation and judgment of Israel. And God is going to pour out his wrath upon the nations and then finally uh, destroy the end of the, the last king of that group, is, which is the Antichrist. And that's why, just from a practical standpoint, looking at the, the program for the different entities, the church is not, is not actually involved in God's program for Israel on a logistic point, and he's not, the church is not involved in God's program of the Gentiles' nations that are there to come against Israel. Any questions about that? That's just from a practical standpoint of looking at God's plan for the different entities. Now, uh, let's look at a few passages that, again, in our church and in other churches, there are differing, differing interpretations about the timing of the rapture. You basically have the mid-trib or the pre-wrath rapture that are similar but not exactly the same, which says that the church will go through part of the tribulation which is prior to the actual wrath of God being poured out or, or part of the tribulation up to the midpoint. And then the church will be raptured out in the middle of that seven years. And then it, they believe the same as the pre-trib as far as the event and what happens. The other one is the post-trib, which believes that the church will be raptured out um, at the end of the tribulation, just before the kingdom age is set up. The one, the one major issue that... I have with the post-trib is that most of the people that hold to the post-trib view come from an all-millennial background, even if they're pre-millennial in believing in the kingdom coming, they still use the same passages that the all-millennial believe as far as a post-trib. And the problem with the post-trib is that if at the time of the rapture, we know that at the time of the rapture, every believer will be translated, will be glorified, either resurrected or changed. If that's true, and the millennial kingdom begins immediately after that, there would be nobody in their physical bodies to inherit the kingdom and to produce children during the kingdom age, which we know happens. So if the rapture took place at the end of the tribulation, just prior to the kingdom age, no physical human beings would be alive to go into the kingdom age because everybody would be translated into a glorified state. So that's uh, part of the issue with that one. And I don't... I'm not going to try to go into the, the scripture reasoning behind the different views. I, I, I believe in a pre-trib rapture, so I'm going to give you the reasons why scripturally I believe that, and then uh, I'll leave it to the others that hold to a different view to, to uh, scripturally defend their, their position on that. But I just want you to know that we have different views on that, so it's, we're not dogmatic that this scripture demands this. The scripture demands that there is a rapture. The timing is not demanded as such, but I think it is definitely given to us in Scripture that the reason why we would hold to a pre-trib rapture. Now I'm going to read three passages of Scripture that kind of give the, to me, the indication that we will not be here during the tribulation as far as the church goes. Okay. The first one is in um, Luke chapter 21. In Luke chapter 21, Luke uh, is recorded what Jesus was talking about when he was uh, mentioning the fact that the disciples asked ask him what signs would, would, would come prior to the destruction of Jerusalem, what signs would come prior to the 
fulfillment of all the things at the end of the age. And so Jesus, in his quotation here, he goes through that entirety of the tribulation in, in Luke, just like he does in Matthew 24. And then he gets to the end of that whole summary of what's going to happen during the tribulation time. And, and in Luke, he even covers the time of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And, but he gets down to verse 33 and it says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So that concludes his segment on giving the understanding of what's going to happen in the judgment that's coming. And then he changes to the people that are living prior to that judgment. And he says in verse 34, Be on guard that your hearts may not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life, that that day come on you suddenly like a trap. The day he's talking about is the day of the coming judgment. It's a specific judgment. It is, in, it is the seven-year tribulation. It is a specific judgment that's coming upon the earth. He goes on and says, For it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of the earth. So this judgment is like it was in the days of Noah. It's going to affect the entire world. The judgment of the tribulation is not a localized judgment. It's not a, it's just not a judgment for part of the earth. It's a judgment that will involve the inhabitants of the entire earth. Everybody will be impacted by this judgment that's living at the time of the judgment. Okay? So then he says, be, But keep on the alert at all times, praying in order that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Now the word here, to, to escape, means to be kept from. It would be like Noah was kept from the flood by what? But what means? He was in the ark. And so the ark protected him or kept him from the, the, the consequences of the judgment that was upon the earth at that time. Here he's talking about the fact that these that have the strength or the righteous standing before God to escape the judgment, that means the believers that have Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, will escape from the earth, which is the place of all the consequences of all the judgments coming on. And to stand before the Son of Man means what? We are resurrected or we are translated and we go to heaven to stand before the judgment seat of Christ to have our works analyzed and judged and how we're going to be rewarded for how faithful we were as those were spirit-filled believers during the church age. So here's a reference to the judgment seat of Christ. So here it says that we will have the strength to escape all these things that are coming upon the earth. second passage is 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, it says, For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, the wrath to come cannot be the wrath of sin or the wrath on sin because he's already delivered us from the wrath of sin when he experienced God's wrath on the cross, right? God's wrath was poured out on Jesus for our sins when he was on the cross. That wrath is complete, it's finished. There is no more wrath to be poured out against sin. So this is a particular wrath that is coming upon the world. And he says he delivers us from the wrath to come, which means he delivers us from the entirety of God's wrath that's going to be poured out at that time. 
the next passage is in, in Revelation chapter 3 when the, John is writing about the current age, the church age, and he uses seven churches as indicators of how the church is going to be during this age. Some of the things he writes to the individual churches are locally for that church at that time. Some of them are general things for the church of its entirety, and some of them are for the church at the specific time that he talks about. In chapter 3 of that section on the churches in Revelation, he says... In verse 9, Behold, I cause those of the synagogue of Satan who, are, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie, behold, I make them to come and bow down at your feet and know that I have loved you. Now this would be a reference, I think, to those that say that they have replaced Israel and have become the new Israel. And their cathedrals are the synagogue of the Old Testament. Then he says in verse 10, Because you, speaking to the church at Philadelphia that has been a faithful church, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. Again, he talks about the whole world. It's a time of special judgment, a special testing, a special tribulation that's coming upon the whole world. So it's not a localized tribulation that the church goes through. It's not a localized time where somebody is going to go through a period of testing by the Romans or testing by someone. It's a time of judgment upon the whole world. And the church is to be kept from that time of tribulation. The other passage that kind of indicates the understanding of various truths about the coming uh, revelation is in Romans chapter 11. Now, Romans chapter 9 to 11, Paul is talking about the fact that God is not finished with Israel. In fact, in chapter 8, he finishes that chapter with that I'm convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of God. So the question immediately says, well, Israel was cut off from the love of God, so what about Israel? How can we know that God's faithful to us if He wasn't faithful to Israel? And then Paul goes into this passage, chapters 9 through 11, speaking to the fact that God is not finished with Israel, that God will fulfill His promise to Israel, He will be faithful to what He promised Abraham, and that the Israel will be restored and, and have a time. So then he says in chapter, he, chapter 11, he talks about the fact that the natural branches were cut off and the wild branches were grafted in. And they're, they're cut off from their privilege of being God's people to spread the good news to the world. Israel was called of God and they were to be God's witnesses upon the world of the true God that had the means of salvation. When they rejected their Messiah, they were cut off, and God brought in the church. He started the church. He called out His apostles, and they laid the foundation. And the church was grafted in as God's ambassadors, God's witnesses, God's truth-tellers to give true message of the means of eternal life. So we were grafted in as the church to that position. And then He says, don't, don't be proud, because if God cut off the natural branches, He can cut off the church. And he will. But not until. Verse 25. I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation that a hardening or a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. So during, in this whole passage, he's comparing God's program for his ethnic people, Israel, to God's program for his church that is primarily a Gentile church. 
And so here in this passage, he's contrasting the natural branches of Israel with the, with the wild branches of the Gentile church. And the church has been grafted into that position of God's ambassadors on earth. And now they will continue that work until the fullness, that means a complete number of the church that is ordained and elect to be a part of the bride of Christ is complete. And then God will take the church out and Israel will be grafted in. And the grafting in begins with 144,000 in Revelation chapters 7. At the beginning of the tribulation, before any of the judgments fall, he makes it clear, you understand this, in chapter 7 of Revelation. He says in verse 1 of chapter 7, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind should blow on the earth or on the sea or any, uh, on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, the beginning of the outpouring of God's wrath and judgment. Hold on. I have to do something first. And then he said... Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. The beginning of the grafting back in of Israel to be the messengers of the gospel of the kingdom during the tribulation, they will be declaring that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the king. You must bow down and worship him and come to him and repent of your sins. And do not take the message of the Antichrist. Do not take the message of the one world system of religion. Believe that Jesus is the Messiah, is the king. And so they begin to preach the 144,000. If the church was still here, it would be the duty of the church to continue to do what we do now. So that is just from a standpoint of not dogmatic Scripture saying it, but from looking at all Scripture and comparing Scripture with Scripture, the point is that from Revelation chapter 4 to Revelation chapter 19, the church is nowhere mentioned during that seven years where the judgments are being poured out. Okay. Now let's go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So Paul, does that 144,000 fit in in the blue right before it says last seven years? They're sealed at the very beginning of that seven-year period as the first fruits of the remnant that will be saved. The remnant will be saved at the coming of Christ, the remnant of the nation, but the 144,000 are the first fruits of that remnant that are saved prior to the, the whole, the remnant, the, the third that's remaining that will be saved at the end. But yes, they're, they are sealed at the very beginning of that 70th week of Daniel. The seven years of tribulation before any of the judgments fall. Okay, go back to Revelation, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now, 1 Thessalonians 4, we're going to do kind of a quick expository uh, through this passage if we have time. Um, it, starts in chapter, it starts in verse 13 when Paul is going to answer two questions that are raised by the church at Thessalonica. The first question concerns those that die. And the first part of the question we've already dealt with, he answers the question, if you die, will you miss out on the rapture? So he, he makes that clear. In verse 14, he says, if we, if, 
in verse 13 he says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Okay, so the first question he answers is that no... If you have loved ones that were in the church and they died, they will not miss out on the rapture. Everyone who is in Christ through the baptism of the Holy Spirit will be brought up and raptured at the same time. Those who have died will be resurrected. Those who are living will be translated. Okay? That, that is the first thing he talked about. Now, one thing is clear here. It says in verse 14... God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Bring with him where? No, they're going to bring him back to heaven. Jesus said, I'm, going to bring, I'm, going to come, I'm coming for you to take you back to my father's house. And here it says, when the, the Lord descends, and that, Jesus, that God will bring with him back to heaven, for wherever Jesus is, we're going to always be. Now, during the tribulation, Jesus is going to be in heaven, sitting, on, sitting at the right hand of the Father, awaiting till the time that He's going to make His enemies His footstool. And at that time, when He comes for the church, we're going back to heaven because we're always going to be with Him wherever He's at. And so at this point in time, He's talking about, He's answering the question about the, the people that die will not miss out, and they'll be going to heaven in their glorified state with Christ. In verse 18, He says, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Receive the comfort knowing that if you die before the rapture, you're not missing out. You're part of the church. You're going to go up with the church, the bride of Christ, and the bridegroom is going to take you back to his father's house. Now we go to chapter 5, a continuation of the same text. Chapter 4, verse 13, through chapter 5, verse 11, is one text. Okay? Now he changes, and that's what people say, well, wait a minute, <laughs> chapter 5 indicates a change. It does indicate a change. In chapter 5, verse 1, it says, But now as to the times and the seasoning, or the seasons, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. In other words, as to the timing of these events, you don't need to be written anything about that because no one knows the timing of this event. So he's talking about the rapture. He's talking about us going back to heaven with Christ in a glorified state. Now he says, but now, not talking about who's going to go, talking about when you're going to go. Now, as to the timing of that, no one knows. And I don't need to write you about that because you're not, that's not going to be part of what you're going to be dealing with. He says in verse 2, For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Now, what does that mean? The day of the Lord, if you look on your chart, the beginning of the day of the Lord is the beginning of the second advent. They're one and the same as far as the time frame. The beginning of the second advent and the rapture of the church is at the same time frame. It's all one and the same. So the rapture of the church will be the next event on God's calendar that will take place suddenly, unexpectedly, which will also begin the second advent, and then the, it will also begin the, the day of the Lord. So the beginning of the day of the Lord, which goes from the beginning of the second advent all the way to the end of the 
or to the beginning of the eternal kingdom in the new heaven, new earth. That is the, the entirety of the day of the Lord. The, the second advent begins with the rapture church and ends with the second coming of Christ to earth. And so the beginning of the day of the Lord, the beginning of the second advent, and the rapture church is the same event, chronologically. It's the only event that takes place without warning, and no one knows the day or the hour. Once the tribulation begins, and once the Antichrist signs a seven-year covenant with Israel, on the Jewish calendar, it will be exactly 1,260 days to the midpoint and exactly 1,260 days after that to the coming of Christ. So once the Antichrist signs a covenant with Israel, you will know the day that Jesus Christ will come back to earth. It will be exactly to the day of the beginning of the, se of the seven years to the end of the seven years on the Jewish calendar. But no one knows the day or the hour that the entirety begins. And that's what he says in Matthew 24. He, he goes through the entirety of the things that are going to take place during the tribulation, and he makes sure that you understand that all those things will, will come to pass, and that the generation that sees the beginning of that tribulation judgment will see it to the end. And then he says in Matthew 24, but at that day and no, an hour, no one knows, not even the, son, uh, the angels in heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. In other words, the coming of the beginning of the second advent or the beginning of the time of judgment will come suddenly upon the earth when they are not prepared. And that's what it says in 1 Thessalonians 5. He says, For us the timing of the rapture, no one knows. For you shall know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night, in verse 2 of 1 Thessalonians 5. And in verse 3 he says, While they... Who is they? The inhabitants of the earth that are unbelievers, that are not part of the church. While they are saying peace and safety, so then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. It's just like they were in the days of Noah. Who was the day, who was the day in the days of Noah? The ones that didn't get on the ark. Everyone that didn't get on the ark went through the judgment. Here, everyone that is not prepared as the part of the bride of Christ who are not believers will be a part of the judgment. They will all be saying peace and safety. We're not concerned about a judgment. It's the mockers in 2 Peter chapter 3 when it says in the last days there will be mockers saying where is the promise of His coming? They're not talking about the coming of Christ to be the king. They're talking about the coming of Christ to judge them. And they disregard the fact that God's already judged the earth once with the flood, he's going to judge the earth again with this tribulation judgment that's coming upon the earth. And they will not escape. They're all going through the tribulation judgment. Okay? So he's talking about these Thessalonian Christians. And the second question they're concerned with, are we going to go through that time? If we die, are we going to miss on the rapture? If we live, are we going to go through this judgment? That's what their concern is. So he says, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light, and sons of the day. We are not of night, nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and be sober. We are anticipating His coming so that we will not be caught off guard. We will not be part of those that are in darkness. We will not be a part of those that are going through the judgment. We will be rescued. Go on down. It says in verse 8, but since we are the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith, hope, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, 
but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. What salvation is he talking about there? Saving from the wrath. Saving from the wrath. Salvation means deliverance. We're already saved from sin. So he's not talking about a salvation from sin. He's talking about a salvation from the wrath that's to come, which is the judgment. So here he's talking about a deliverance from the wrath that's coming upon the whole world. The wrath of God is being poured out on the whole world. Everybody that's living at the time of that, of that wrath is going to experience the wrath. But we are not part of the day. We're not part of that night. We're not part of that darkness. We're not part of that time. We're going to be delivered from that wrath to come. Yes, Joe. People on the other side argue that point that, that, that it's not talking about end times wrath. It's talking about eternal wrath. Right. So people, people on the other side disagree with you? Yes, they would say that that wrath does not re refer to particular wrath. Now some, now, some that have a pre-wrath rapture say that the wrath doesn't really start till a certain point in the tribulation. That before that, it's just natural judgments that Satan is doing upon us. But then there comes a point where God pours out his wrath. So they would distinguish between parts of the tribulation as being pre-wrath and parts of the tribulation being after wrath. So they would say that they were delivered from that wrath, but the wrath doesn't really start at the beginning of the tribulation. It starts at some point during the tribulation. So they would hold to a pre-wrath rapture that they would agree that this passage means that, but they would say it doesn't mean the entirety of the tribulation. It just means part of it. Paul? Yes. Is the Antichrist an incarnation of Satan himself? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a lot of debate on the person, personage of the Antichrist. When, Jesus, when God spoke in the garden, when he was speaking to the serpent, he said, there will be in between my seed, uh, the woman's seed, your seed, or, or the serpent's seed and the woman's seed, the seed of the woman. Now, we know the seed of the woman refers to Christ. So what is the seed of the serpent? Most people would say, oh, it just refers to the mankind in general that are, that are fallen. But no, specifically in the context, if the one seed is referring to a specific individual, then the other seed has to be too. So the indication is that there's coming a man that's going to be a seed of Satan. Now, we know that the Antichrist dies at the midpoint of the tribulation and is brought back to life. Most people believe that at that time when he's brought back to life, he is completely indwelt by the, the, the Satan himself, takes him over and works through him. We know that his coming at the beginning is in the power of Satan. So he is a, um, influenced or, or controlled by Satan from the beginning. But whether he becomes actually a reincarnation being, a human being, with Satan incarnating in him is the question. So that, 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 and some people even go to the point where they believe that because Jesus was born of a virgin, that the Antichrist will be born of Satan. Similar to what they believe that in, happened in Genesis 6 when the, the angels came down and had cohabitation with the daughters of men and produced an offspring. So they think that, they, that 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 will happen again with Satan producing an offspring himself. So there's a lot of things out there about that. But either way, he is Satan's man, and he's a bad guy. He's Satan's man during that time. Okay, so when you read that passage in 1 Thessalonians 5, and you get down to that point, it says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, and whether we are awake or asleep... Referring right back to the first question, if you die, are you going to miss out on the rapture? So here he's saying, whether we are awake, living, 
or asleep, dead, Christian saints, church saints, we may live together with him at the rapture. You're talking back, back to the rapture. We're going to be right, we're going to living together with him whether we are asleep or awake. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Again, the second encouragement is, no, you're not going through the wrath of God that's being poured out on the earth during the tribulation. The church will be taken up prior to the pouring out of God's wrath. Okay, so that, so along with all the other reasons for the program for the Israel and the program for the church does not, I mean, the program for the Gentile kingdoms does not include the church during this seven-year time frame. We are going to be in heaven. And next week we'll talk about God's program for the church during this seven years while we're in heaven. But we're not a part of what's going on earth because that time frame is destined and assigned to the people on earth who are not part of the church, including the people of Israel, including the Gentile nations, and specifically the Gentile kingdom, the final kingdom, which is the kingdom of Satan's rule on earth through the Antichrist. Any questions real quick? So, I believe as you look at the entirety of Scripture, and you look at God's plan for the ages, and you look at the entirety of God's dealing with the church, God's dealing with Israel, and God's dealing with the, the Gentile nations, you look at the various Scriptures that talk about all these things, that the second, end of, second advent of Christ is not one event. It is various events. It's, it, describes God's, uh, it, it describes a coming bridegroom for His bride, a coming judgment uh, upon the earth, and a coming king to set up His kingdom. And all those are part of the work of God in the second advent of Christ. And it's how Christ is going to deal with the church, how Christ is going to deal with Israel, and how Christ is going to deal with those nations that are coming against his people, Israel. And so that, those three are involved in this time frame. And when you compare all those things and you look at the scriptures themselves, I believe the best understanding interpretation of the timing of the rapture requires a pre-trib rapture. Okay? Fulfill the 70th week of Daniel, which is for Israel. It's not a part of the church. And if you look, the first 483 years of, of Daniel's prophecy about the 70 week or the 483 years ended with Christ coming and then dying, and then the church began, and there's no Israel. So Israel's not involved in anything until Christ begins to deal with Israel again when the church is taken up. Okay, one last passage, and this is just something I will throw out there for you to think about. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50 again, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet... For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. What does the last trumpet refer to? Well, yeah, it refers to the rapture, definitely, because you go back to 1 Thessalonians 4, and he says three, uh, three or four things are going to happen at the, at the time of the rapture. The voice of the Lord um, will happen, the voice of the archangel. And then it says the trump will sound, or the trumpet of God. If I can get there. 
So in 1 Thessalonians 4, it says in verse 16, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. So you're going to have the command of the commander-in-chief, the Lord Jesus Christ, will give a shout of command, and the voice of the archangel will repeat the command, and then the trumpet will be sounded, and it will be the summons to obey the command, and the dead will rise first. So the trumpet there is a reference to the same trumpet here in 1 Corinthians 15, but the point is in when Paul is writing, I mean, to the Corinthian church here, what would the Corinthians understand about the meaning of the last trumpet? Huh? <laughs> I, the only reference in Scripture to the trumpet would be the Feast of Trumpets in the Old Testament. And if you went back and you studied the Feast of Trumpets, there was a series of trumpet blasts during that feast. And then the final trumpet blast was the last trumpet, and it was the one that that brought in the ingathering of whatever they were celebrating there on the trumpet, Feast of Trumpets, preparing for the Day of Atonement and then the, the Feast of Tabernacles. So if you look at the, the Feast of Trumpets, prepared the people for the Day of Atonement, which was their salvation, which prepared them for the coming of the Messiah to dwell with them, and that's what the Feast of Tabernacles is for. So here's a picture of the time that Israel is going to be brought in and restored, and then say um, they're going to be saved and then they're going to go into the kingdom age so for the israelites the feast of trumpets fulfillment would be that when christ brings them back and restores them to the land restores them to there and then saves them and then they go into the time when he dwells with them that's the whole point of the feast of, of trumpets the day of atonement and then the feast of tabernacles that's what it signifies some people believe that the Feast of Trumpets also signifies the ingathering of the church. Now, the church began on a Jewish feast day, a Pentecost. It could just been because that's when the majority of the Jews would be there from different language groups, and the sign of the Spirit of God coming upon the church was speaking in different languages. And so that's why God used Pentecost as the beginning of the church, or it could be a fulfillment in some ways of a Jewish type of Pentecost or a type of first fruits that happened at Pentecost. Some people believe the last trump here is a reference to that fulfillment of the Feast of Trumpets that's coming for the Jews, but it comes for the church at the time of the rapture. So does that mean that the rapture would come at the same time as Rosh Hashanah in the feast days? I don't know, and I don't think so. It could, but it, not necessarily. But either way, the last trumpet would, would be a reference to a call to, in, to gather in the saints. So in the Old Testament, it would be a call to gather in the remnant to the land and then to have them saved and go into the kingdom age. For the church, it's a summons to bring in the ingathering of the bride of Christ. Okay? So whether it focuses on the specific time of the Feast of Trumpets or whether it's just a, a understanding that the last trumpet is the trumpet that sounds to bring the summons of the people to God, which I believe is what he's talking about there, it's the trumpet that brings in the elect of the church to meet Christ in the air and then go back to heaven with him.